Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. All right, friends, uh, we're continuing in our sermon series uh, through the book of John. And if you've been with us for the first, uh, for the past, I, I think it's been a, almost a year uh, or a while, uh, we are um, uh, excited to, well, we're excited and sad to be near at the end, uh, chapter, chapter 20. And last week, uh, we talked about uh, John chapter 19, or the end of John chapter 19, where John kind of leaves us at the end of the chapter with kind of this melancholic feel. If you were here last week, or if, you, if you're familiar with the passage, think about the scenery and the setting of how the passage ended. Okay, Jesus was crucified, he died, and also notice what happened. It was, it was on Friday night before the annual Jewish Passover celebration, which is on a Saturday. So, so picture the setting of the scene. It was Friday night, it was dark, it was gloom, okay? But also, it was filled with a funeral scene. We saw Jesus' body wrapped in linen and brought to a tomb along with 75 pounds of very expensive herbs and spices wrapped around his dead body, which Nicodemus purchased. And his body was laid there uh, in a tomb located in a garden. And that's how chapter 19 ended. And, and a careful reader of the book of John would have been confused at this point. 
because this doesn't fit at all with John's opening in chapter 1, okay? Didn't John write in chapter 1 that Jesus is God who took on flesh and became our light that entered into our darkness to redeem us and that the light entered into the, the, our darkness though the darkness rejected this light yet the darkness could not overcome it and the light will prevail. Wasn't that what John chapter 1 is all about? It seems completely opposite to what we see at the end of chapter 19. It seemed at the end of chapter 19 that darkness has won until we read what we just read in chapter 20 and we see the light prevailing. Now, what our passage does today as we study it deeper is it sweeps us off our feet and takes us through a journey across redemptive history from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. It takes us all the way back to creation, the creation story in the book of Genesis, to the failings of Adam in the garden, through the temple in Moses' days, all in one sweep. And after taking us through that journey, it'll accumulate the force of all that drama into the one event of Jesus' resurrection. And if you are to believe it in his resurrection, that accumulated force of redemptive history will plant itself deeply in your hearts to where, I hope, it'll reveal to you the hero of that story who will show you your place in it and the implications that it has in your life and the redeeming love that he has for you through it all. I pray that be the case for us here today. Let's pray before we continue in our sermon. Father, what a passage we have before us today. Truths too great and amazing for finite reasonings to understand. We beg of you that you show yourself through your spirit by your word to us today and that we may truly know who you are, not based on our own speculations and feelings, but based on your word and how you have revealed yourself to be in it. And let us fall in deeper love with you from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three things I want to point out from the passage. One, the dawning light of new creation. Two, the pursuing light that calls us by name. And three, the true light that is eternally with us. The dawning light of new creation, the pursuing light that calls us by name, and the true light that is eternally with us. Let's, let's start with point one, the dawning light of new creation. Let's go to verse one, where we see the setting of this resurrection scene. Okay, John describes it to be the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. So after the crucifixion, which is a Friday night, John skips the Passover Saturday, and he goes straight to Sunday morning. And many people find that odd. Why does John call it the first day of the week? In fact, all four Gospels, books that record the story and life of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of those Gospels, those, those Gospel records, describe the Resurrection Sunday as the first day of the week. And a lot of people find that odd because they think, shouldn't you call it the third day after the resurrection? I mean, after the crucifixion? I mean, concerning the magnitude of the event of the cross and the death of Christ and the crucifixion, wouldn't it make sense for the cross to be the starting point to define the resurrection and call it the third day after the resurrection and not the first day of the week? But you see Matthew chapter 20, 28, verse 1, Mark chapter 16, verse 2, Luke chapter 24, verse 1, and here, John chapter 20, verse 1, all describe the resurrection Sunday as the first day of the week. 
Why is that? Because there's an emphasis that they all want to communicate here. That this day is truly the beginning of something new. There's, there's a newness to it. The imagery is clearly intended by John here because not only does he describe this as the first day of the week, but also emphasizing the setting was the dawn of a new day. Look at verse 1 again. When did this happen? While it was still dark. Lights just beginning to shine. It's, it's, it's Sunday morning, still too early, but light is coming. Now, does this imagery remind you of something? Think back to Genesis, the theme of something new, the theme of it being the first day of the week, light starting to shine in the darkness, in a garden, right? It should bring us back to the first day of creation in the Garden of Eden. And this was an intentional connection made by John. Remember, this isn't the first time John diverts, John diverts our attention back to God's creation work in Genesis. Even in the introduction, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's echoing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1, verses 4 to 5, light shines in the darkness, but darkness has not overcome the light. Sorry, John chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. He said that light shines in the darkness, who is Jesus Christ, but the darkness has not overcome the light. There's a light and darkness motif here. And if you read Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, you see again what? God said, let there be light. And he separated the light from the darkness. He's trying to get your attention to the creation uh, seen back in Genesis, okay? But also, there's a clear garden imagery connections to that John is, is giving throughout the book. When Jesus was captured, where did John emphasize it happening? In a garden. And out of all the four Gospels, John is the only one that emphasizes the location of where Jesus is crucified, which was near a garden. And now John emphasizes that the resurrection is happening in a tomb located where? In a garden. Jesus was captured, died, and resurrected all in a garden. What is John trying to communicate here just with the opening scene? What's about to happen, John is saying, will be the source of new creation, of true life. This is the dawn of something that will truly renew and redeem and give new life. But also includes uh, in the setting here, John does, that the darkness, however, was still present. It was still dark referring to, I want to argue, Mary, Peter, and John's lack of faith that we see here in our passage. So let, let's take a look at them. Verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, not Jesus' mother Mary, but another Mary, one of Jesus' disciples, came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus has loved, who is John himself, or he's referring to himself here, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. See, here's a reaction I often hear when we talk about something like the resurrection. We would say something like this, well, of course, Mary, Peter, and John, and pe people like them back then, you know, before the Enlightenment era, pre-modernity, of course, people like them would believe something like the resurrection. Right? I don't want to sound mean, but they're just, they weren't that smart back then. They were gullible. They didn't use much reason as we do today. So, of course, they'd believe in mythical things like the resurrection. I think that's a bit unfair. Notice how Mary reacted when she saw the tomb. She didn't just say, empty tomb. I, I guess he resurrected. <laughs> she didn't say that. 
What did she say? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She immediately used her reasoning. She thought somebody else took Jesus' body. They took, who's they, referring to either the Jews or the Romans that crucified him. Surely somebody took his body. She saw the evidence, see? Her mind started working, and her reason led her to a conclusion that perhaps most of us would have landed, being in her shoes, that some people took Jesus' body. And then in verses 3 to 5, we see John and Peter reacting to, to Mary's news. They both ran to the tomb. And by the way, John gives details here about who got there first and who came in first and, and all these details about Peter and John running. There may be various reasons of why he included all those details, but I think the main purpose is to convince people that this really did happen. You know how sometimes when you're trying to convince someone of an event that really did happen and then they're not, they don't believe you and then you start to get into details? to convince him, like, I promise you, it was 10 a.m., it was near the store, and it was on the street, and he and she was there. I'm not making it up. Here are the details. He, he's trying to convince you, I'm not making this up. Let me, let me give you the exact details of what's going on. And also, the weight of the story demands it, doesn't it? In a courtroom, when you're giving a testimony, you have to be detailed, because in a major case, the truthfulness of the event will affect people's lives. The details matter. So John's giving us the details here about who arrived first, and we see in verses 6 to 7, John and Peter arrive at the tomb, and immediately, Peter, who went in first, what did he do? When he entered the tomb, and a tomb back then was, was like an underground cave where you kind of, you can enter, bend down and enter in and, and, and go deeper. There's a bigger room uh, down there. Peter entered first, and what do we see Peter do? He used his reason. Look at the middle of verse 6. <coughs> Sorry. It said there that Peter saw. Now, this is interesting. The Greek word here used for see or saw wasn't the normal Greek word for seeing. The normal Greek word is blepo. What John used here is a Greek word, thereo, whereas the English word that we get theorized from. When Peter saw the evidence, he, he theorized. His reasons and his mind started working. He used his reasoning. He wasn't this pre a historic dumb man. He's thinking, what happened here? And what did he see? Look at the end of verses 6 to 7. He saw the linen cloth laying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not laying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now what Peter saw didn't fit at all with Mary's conclusion earlier. Remember, Mary reasoned earlier that the Romans and the Jews took Jesus' body. But what Peter saw that the linens, the linen cloths were not taken. And, and he's thinking, if, if it was really the Romans or the Jews that, that took Jesus, why would they go through the trouble of taking off the linen cloths that conveniently packed in the body for ease of transfer? Why would they do that? Okay, maybe they wanted to get rid of the extra 75 pounds of heavy crushed spices and aromatic herbs that was contained in the linen. Remember what that Nicodemus put there? But that seems to be more trouble than it's worth because 75 pounds of weight, that's as simple as asking two additional grown soldiers to help. What, so why would they go through all that trouble? And even if that was the case, what about the face cloth? Why was it neatly folded by itself? Would Roman soldiers and Jews who hated Jesus treat it with such respect? Based on the evidence, it seems a little unreasonable to me, Peter says, that this was the work of Jews or Roman army. So who was it then? Grave robbers? 
Maybe, but that wasn't convincing either because why would grave robbers leave expensive linen here? And also remember all the expensive spices and herbs that was packed into Jesus' body by Nicodemus, 75 pounds of it. That was worth years of wages of salary. Why would a grave robber leave all that behind? That seems a bit reasonable too. See, so Peter, Mary, John are not as naive as their caricatures might often paint them as. Okay, we might say, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe it was just too early. And what Peter saw was wrong. It was still dark, right? That's what John says. So he didn't see clearly. So in verse 8, just to confirm that what Peter saw was true, John describes himself as going into the tomb, also seeing the same thing. He saw too. But then it continued to say that what he saw made him believe. Okay. A comment I want to make about the nature of this belief. I don't know if we can confidently say, some might, uh, that this is when John believed, as in he received in Christ. He, he believed. He was born again. But this was at least uh, definitely a notable time in his journey of faith in Christ. But I don't think he was fully there. Why do I say that? Look at verse 9. A few reasons. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the Scriptures, the Old Testament, that he must rise from the dead. So somehow the Old Testament and the resurrection interconnects with, in a way but yet John and Peter and Mary could not really make sense of it yet. It hasn't really clicked for them. They don't yet see how the resurrection is God's, a part of God's redemptive story throughout the Old Testament and it relates to our salvation. Second reason why I think it's not true belief, look at verse 10. It describes their reaction. After all this, they simply did what? They simply just went home to their homes. It's pretty anticlimactic, <laughs> Right? Compared to Mary's reaction in verse 18, when she went home ecstatic, proclaiming he is risen. Third reason, remember the setting of the scene. A new light of day was dawning, yes, and truth was starting to peek its head. The sun was, but darkness was still there. It's dawn, but barely. And John throughout this book has been using darkness to communicate more than just physical realities, but also spiritual ones. And it's very likely his use of darkness here was also to represent the state of faith that Mary and John and Peter were still in at the moment. They're beginning to see the hints of true light in this new dawn, but was still dulled by the darkness of their disbelief. Here's the whole point of verses 1 to 10. Here's what I'm trying to say. The light, who is ultimately Christ, and God's salvation plan as laid out in Scripture, and how all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, all of this, you know, Reason alone won't make it click for you. It won't make it click for you. Now again, I'm not saying don't use reason. Mary, Peter, and John here did. And Christianity is a reasonable faith. And you know, it's interesting to see that in the second century church, Christianity by and large um, was seen as distinct from all other religions, not only because it broke the bounds of culture, it didn't really belong to one ethnicity, but many people from different tribes uh, uh, were Christians. Not only because it broke the bounds of financial boundaries, as we saw last week in chapter 19, Nicodemus and Joseph were really rich people, worshiped Jesus. And now in chapter 20, poor fishermen like Peter worshiped Jesus. But what's interesting to see, many people in the second century thought that Christianity was distinct from every other religion because of its high use of reason. So much so, that for many people, Christianity didn't even fall under the category of religion at all. They didn't think it was religion. For a lot of people, they thought Christianity should fall under the category of philosophy. Because such use of reason in the realm of religion was not heard of 
when you're talking about religions. The ones having dialogues and refuting Christianity were philosophers. Philosophers approach Christianity and dialogue with them as if it fell under the category of philosophy due to its ample use of reason. I'm not saying don't use reason. It's a good thing. But what our text is saying is that although Christianity is not less than reason, it is much more than that. Human reason alone, as hard as Mary and Peter and John's brain worked, won't make it click. It will not make you fall in love with Jesus. You will not see how his resurrection connects with God's redemptive plan throughout the Old Testament. You won't see how it connects with you. In order to make it all click, we are dependent upon something much bigger than our finite reasoning, which is our second point, the true light that calls us by name. As the disciples went home, as, Mary, uh, as described in verse uh, 10, Mary described in verse 11 to having gone back to the empty tomb. Why did she go back to the empty tomb? Well, she was overtaken by grief. She didn't know what else to do. And verse 11 alone describes her weeping two times, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. As she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. I mean, imagine the grief she's in. Remember who she was. <coughs> Luke chapter 8 describes Mary as being demon-possessed. She was this outcast, crazy person that society cared nothing for. She was, in every way uh, described, perhaps, a loser in people's eyes. And the one person that ever loved her and cared for her was Jesus. And she lost him too. He died. And the remaining of what she had of him now is gone too. She couldn't take it. And, and with a rushed, crushed heart, she came back to the tomb and looked into it, but yet this time she saw something else in the tomb. Not just the linen and the folded face cloth, but verse 12. Two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now what's peculiar about this, as if the fact that their angels weren't peculiar enough, is that John included the details of how many angels were there and the positions in which they were sitting. Stick with me. Both the number of angels and the position they were in mirrored the Ark of the Covenant. Keep this in the back of your head. We're going to get back to it later. Okay? It mirrored the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was a large chest made out of gold, bronze, silver, and other precious metals, which God told Moses and the Israelites to carry with them during their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. It was, a pla it was placed in the most inner room of the temple, where they worshipped, called the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence and glory was. And at the top of this chest is what's called the mercy seat. And this was God's instruction of what to carve at the head and the foot of the mercy seat. Okay, Exodus 25, 18. Make two cherubim, who are their angels, of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. The two angels here we see that sat at both ends of where Jesus laid mirrored exactly the angels at, uh, that were carved atop of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, keep that in the back of your minds. Now back to the story. What did these angels ask Mary? Why are you weeping? They weren't asking for curiosity. The answer is obvious, right? She's weeping because of the empty tomb. What they're really doing is they're bringing Mary to realize the reason for her tears. Woman, they're saying, why does an empty tomb cause you to weep? 
might there be another explanation to why it's empty? Other than what your finite reasonings can muster up? And Mary repeated her answer again. They've taken him, referring to the assumed Jews and Romans and grave robbers who, who surely they took the body, right? It was at this moment of grieving, Mary turned around, not clearly what prompted her to do that, but she did, and she saw Jesus. But notice, even then, it wasn't ultimately her eyesight that made things click. Verse 14 tells us that her sight didn't do much good for her. She thought Jesus was the gardener, but remember, the tomb was in the garden, so she misunderstood who he was. In verse 15, Jesus asked the same question the angels did. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Mary responds as if talking to a gardener. Sir, if, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away, still thinking he's the gardener. It still didn't click. Her reason didn't make it click. Her sight cannot make sense of all of this, but something else did. You know what it was? You know what it was that made it click for Mary? That made sense? Not her eyesight, not her reason. It was Jesus' voice. Mary, he said in verse 16. Jesus used a familiar name that he's been using while he's alive, a name that she knows he would have called her by. Mary. And immediately, immediately upon hearing the voice of her beloved Lord in verse 16, Mary turned. But think about it. Where does she turn to? In verse 14, she already turned to Jesus. Where is she turning to now? Commentators agree, to the empty tomb. She's, she's in disbelief. Her mind's racing and working again. The, the tomb's empty. He's supposed to be in there. But he's outside. Can it be? Can it be? And finally, in verse 16, prompted by the voice of Jesus, her head caught up with her heart, and she responded, Rabboni. Again, don't miss the undertones of intimacy and familiarity that John is trying to describe happening between Jesus and Mary here. That is the name that Mary's been calling Jesus throughout his life. And John writes in Aramaic, Rabboni, and explains it after, which means teacher. You know how sometimes you have an inside joke or inside saying that only you and your closest companions know, but sometimes you've got to give extra explanation to those who are outsiders because they won't get it? John's wanting to emphasize there's a closeness here to Mary and Jesus, a companionship between Mary and Jesus. You see how gracious Jesus was? Mary, this whole time you doubted. She doubted. She tried to do all she can, and she looked, and she looked, and she looked, and she reasoned, and she reasoned, and she reasoned, and she came back a second time to look again. But until Jesus initiated to her, until he called her by name, all her seeking, all her reasoning could not make it click. But the call of Jesus made everything clear. Remember John 10, what did Jesus say? The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, and they will listen to my voice. Why did Jesus reveal himself to Mary? It wasn't because Mary had faith on her own. 
She was looking for Jesus, yes, but she was looking for a human Jesus, a dead Jesus. And Jesus already told the disciples that he's going to raise up. Mary didn't believe. So her looking for Jesus here is actually more of a comment of her lack of faith than anything. It wasn't because of her faith. It wasn't because Mary was, a, was culturally the most strategic person there. You know, women were so disregarded back then that their testimonies wouldn't even count in a legal court of law. One of the early philosophers named Celsus, who was a huge opponent of Christianity, said this against the resurrection account. All right, so what he said. After death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment uh, and how his hands had been pierced and his feet had been pierced. But who said this? A hysterical, crazed female. Mary didn't have much faith. She was not culturally the most strategic person to go to. She didn't have money and friends in high places. So why did Jesus call her name? Because God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Because God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. How many of you today find yourself to be the least likely candidate like Mary? For whatever reason it may be. But don't you see? Jesus doesn't call those who think they're strong. Jesus calls those who realize that they're weak. It is at our lowest, does he say, my grace is sufficient for you. If you're here today and you find yourself not worthy, I hope you realize that. And if you have received him and you're here today, I hope you remember. You did not find him because of your moral pedigree. You did not found him because you have good superior reasoning. It was he in your failures and weaknesses who called you by name as he revealed himself to you in his holy scriptures. If that's the state in which he first grabbed hold of you, then why do you now think he'll reject you when you failed? When you're at your lowest, while you're weak, was this not the exact state you were in when he called you by name? Take heart. The way which God saves should be the testimony to the fact that he'll never let you go. He will be with you forever. Which is our last point. Point three. <coughs> the true light that is eternally with us. Mary finally found Jesus. But only because Jesus first found her. Overjoyed, she clung to him. And if you read Matthew chapter 28, it gives more specific details. She clung to his feet as if to never let go. Of course, imagine that. You've probably been in that situation before. Have you ever be, been united to someone who you thought you'd lost forever? Remember how hard you clung on to him or her? But Jesus, to our surprise, in verse 17 said, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Why did he do that? Well, Jesus wasn't saying, Mary, I don't want to be with you. Rather, Jesus was telling Mary of the manner in which he will be with her. And that is not through his physical presence. It is not through his physical body. 
Remember what Jesus said in chapter 16. When I ascend, I will send my spirit, the spirit of truth into your hearts. And the Holy Spirit is the one that will cause your eyes to truly see the great redemption plan that I've laid out throughout the Old Testament. All the way back from Genesis uh, to now. And the Spirit is going to cause you uh, to see how it all interconnects with my resurrection. And when you finally understand my redemption plan, which is accomplished through my death and resurrection, then you'll hear me through it call your name. You unlikely one. You weak sinner. You faithless one. You anxious one. You insecure one. You, I'm calling you. And you'll have all of me, not through my physical presence, but through my spirit. That's what Jesus is telling Mary. And by the way, that's not all, Mary. Look at the end of verse 17. By the way, because of all this, because of what I've done for you, you won't only have me, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, but you also have my Father, God the Father. You'll have him too. You get to call him Father too. Look at the end of verse 17. Because I've paid for your sins on that cross, and I've proven the validity of my sacrificial atonement through my resurrection. So now, because of my death and resurrection, you can call him Father too, and he can call you child. Because when he looks at you, he sees my righteousness and not your sin anymore. And hold on, Mary, there's more. Look at verse 17. Jesus tells Mary to go and tell his brothers. Tell, tell my brothers this news, referring to the other disciples. But I want to point out here that, one, uh, this is the first time in the whole book the term brothers or adelphos is described, uh, is used to describe a group of people who are not biologically family. Jesus is saying, Mary, you now truly have family, true brothers, a new family, new creatures redeemed under my blood. But that's not all, Mary. Another thing I want to point out about this brothers thing, the people that were there at the time were not just men. Mary was there. And if you read the other gospel accounts, there are other women who were with Mary that were there. So then why did Jesus address men and women as brothers? Not brothers and sisters. Why? Remember, back then, women were disregarded. And the ones that deserved the inheritance of a father were only males, specifically the oldest male. Women were looked down upon. But Jesus is saying here, not in my kingdom, not in my family. In my family, male and female are equal, equally guilty in sin, and equally redeemed through my blood. So Mary, you as a part of my family now, through my blood, you too have the right of inheritance of eternal life, something only sons have privilege of in your culture. So Mary, go now and tell those boys that you too are a son. Let nothing shame the one whom I have washed with my blood. Let nothing else define them, not their own sins, not their cultural norms. They have one thing and one thing alone that defines them, my voice. And you know what it says? That you are mine. Mary, you are mine. I've taken your guilt and your shame in my death, and I've imparted unto you eternal life and honor in my resurrection. And all of a sudden, the Old Testament makes sense now, a little bit, doesn't it? 
Remember in, in verse 9, John says the resurrection and the Old Testament in, interconnects in one way. But how? Let's, let's go through it. Our passage today actually touches on some Old Testament themes. This will be the last thing we do. Let's see how it interconnects with the death and resurrection of Christ. First, remember the theme of creation in the garden in Genesis. Remember? First day of the week, light and darkness, garden, the theme of newness. The newness of creation is found not only in the garden of Eden, that's what John's trying to say, but newness of God's creation is found in this garden too. That through the death and resurrection of Christ, this is God's work of new creation. And those who've received it uh, are new creatures, Paul said. The old has gone and the new has come. That's not just poetic language. It's, it's, it's as real as the first creation is. So if you're a Christian today, you are a new creature. And you know what hurts me? That when I hear this, when I hear Christian guys say, you know, this girl is great. She's a Christian. She's truly received Christ as Lord and Savior. And she's truly following Christ. But I don't think I'll marry her. And they're asked, why wouldn't you marry her? Well, because before she received Christ, she had sex before marriage. So I can't marry her. Why not? Why not? Don't you know that she is a new creature? Don't you know that she's redeemed by the blood of Christ? There is no more sin. As real as the first creation work in Genesis was, so she is now truly new in Christ. Do not hang unto sins which God no longer sees. And if she wants to walk down that aisle with a veil, let her. Because she is new in Christ. No past sins. No cultural norms define God's child anymore. Only the voice of Christ and through his blood declares her to be new. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, which God commanded to cover the two angels with on both, on both ends, what was that all about? Where is it that we receive mercy after mercy after mercy? In the fact that God put on flesh and was slain for us, why do the angels here mimic the mercy seat, seat upon, upon the place of where Jesus' body laid? Because that's exactly where the slain body of Christ was, the place of mercy, where we are given something new and, and criminals like us, sinners like us, can now be counted, counted as innocent because God has been counted as guilty by a human court of law. Mercy after mercy after mercy. See, the resurrection defines the Old Testament and vice versa. Do you see now where Jesus chose Mary? The most unlikely candidate possible to become the recipient of eternal redemption and became the first person to ever cry, he is risen. Because that's God's MO. God takes old creatures who realize they're weak, rampant with sin, filled with guilt and shame, and in his mercy, he renews them. He pays for their sins with his own blood and he proclaims them to be his own and he unites them with one another so that at the end of the age, all of his people who are redeemed by his blood, 
who are called by his voice will be showered by his mercy according to the counsel of his eternal will to the honor and praise of his glory forever and ever. That's the point of your existence and mine. Friends, immerse yourself in this story. The more you do that, the more you'll live to the honor of praise of his glory today. Remind yourself of his death and resurrection and the implications that it has on you. And the more you're immersed in this story, the more you will live your lives in such a way that proclaims the truth that he is your father and that his spirit lives in you and that he is truly risen. Let's pray. Father, you have sent your son to die on a cross. And Jesus, you've resurrected, paying, atoning for our sins, and giving us a picture of what we can hope for in the future. And telling us that in this garden where you resurrected, we too now, by the work of your redemption, are truly new creatures. And that although old sins still entangle itself and the passions and desires of the old self are still here, we are guilty no more. And that in you we are truly new. And that we should not count our sins or each other's sins in such a way where you no longer hold them against us because every ounce of it has been placed upon the body of Christ who died in our place. Lord, let this truth seek deeply in our hearts. Let nothing else define us, not our sin, not our moral achievements, not our businesses, not our ethnicities, not our age, not our last names, not what this culture says about us, but let your voice who calls us by name and calls us as your own be the identity that drives our whole lives and our whole beings that we may live our lives ultimately not as businessmen, not as a father, not as a child, not as anything else, although those things are real and true, but first and foremost, let us live as redeemed new creatures under the blood of Christ who cry to God the Father, Abba. I pray, Father, the world will see that in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.